Last week, I talked about three levels of relationship that Moses had with God. The first was he had a, he had a head knowledge. He had a knowledge about God. He identified as a Hebrew rather than as Pharaoh's uh, son, Pharaoh's grandson. He knew who he was. He identified with the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. But up until this point, it was a knowledge of God. Then out in the wilderness, with that knowledge of God, with that sometimes just the knowledge of God without the heart and the character of God could get us to misinterpret the God that really is. And Moses took matters into his own hand, killed an Egyptian, and long story short, is running away to save his life and ends up in the wilderness, in the desert. And sometimes just a knowledge of God can put you in the desert. It can put you in the wilderness. If you only have a black and white knowledge of God, a written knowledge, a told knowledge about God, It can put you in the wrong place. But in the wilderness, Moses had an encounter with God. He learned his name. I am that I am. He saw some of the power of God. God says, when you go back to Egypt, I want you to go where you ran from. How many of you know when you have an encounter with God, it'll change your direction? So, just a, a, a head knowledge of God can sometimes put you in the desert, but when you have an encounter with God, it'll change your direction. And he says, I want you to go back to the place you ran from. Moses had now heard the name of God and he saw the power of God. He had an encounter. And then in the wilderness, uh, after he took the people out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, Moses insists I don't want to go to the promised land, God, without you. And God says, okay, I'll go with you. I'll make sure I go with you. And Moses said, now that we've agreed on that point, I want to bargain for some more. And he says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see the fullness of who you are. You say you know me by name. I want to know you by your heart. I want to know you by your character. Show me your glory. And without re-preaching last week's sermon, you could listen to it on the podcast. You can watch it on live stream because we, re- we save every live stream. So you go back and watch it. But <clears throat> what we concluded last week was that the head knowledge, a head knowledge of God will keep you in the desert. An encounter with God will change your direction. But when you see God, it'll take you to your destiny. And so I, I, I finished the message with a question, are you worshiping the God you heard about or the God you encountered or the God you see? And I didn't say the God you saw. I said the God you see because morning by morning new mercies I see. Every day I see another depth of God, another facet of God. It's an ongoing, growing revelation of how awesome and incredible God is. Uh, I've come to the realization that this puny little head can't contain all of who God is in one sit-down experience. 
And so it's an ongoing progressive revelation. How many of you are with me? You agree? Absolutely. When Moses was in the wilderness, God said, I want you to make a tabernacle. I want you to do everything I tell you exactly according to the measurements I give you and exactly to the pattern because it is representative. It is a pattern of things that really exist. You're going to create a shadow of it even though it'll have three dimension and it'll have wood and gold and it'll have curtains and you'll have a three-dimensional copy of it but it's still a shadow of its reality because its reality is in heaven. He says, so make sure you do it exactly the way it is. It's important then if we understand that the tabernacle in the wilderness is a pattern of real things it's, under, it's important that even though that's Old Testament, the tabernacle that's in heaven is New Testament. It's forever. And so we, we're given this so that we understand the workings, so that we can understand the principles, so that we can understand the process, so that we can understand God. And um, what's interesting is uh, we're going to throw up... Um, Oh, that sounds terrible. We're going to throw up. <laughs> We're going to put up on the screen a uh, colored image of what the tabernacle looked in the wilderness. And it was surrounded by a wall of curtains and it was a bright white linen. And it represented the holiness of God. And what's interesting is this outer dimension is called the outer court and there's only one way in. And it's called the gate of entrance. And Jesus rightly said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father but by me. And what's really interesting is that as soon as you went in through the only way in, the very first thing you encounter is an altar of sacrifice. And as soon as we come in to God, we come in because of the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on the cross. Can I get an agreement? The outer court was open to anyone who had somewhat of a faith in God. In the Old Testament, it was the Hebrew people. Then later on, as Gentile people converted to Judaism, it was even referred to as the court of the Gentiles. It was open to anyone who had a faith a knowledge, a willingness to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it was open to the masses. Now if we go to the next diagram, which is more of a floor plan, here you have the outer court and the gate of entrance, which is we come to God through Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice. And the priests, the people would come in and bring their sacrifices for their sins. And the priest would slaughter those sacrifices. And then the priests would go to this brass laver filled with water. And they would wash themselves before they went into the holy place. The people weren't allowed in the holy place. Only the priests could. And so the priests would go into the holy place. 
And the first thing they would do every morning is they would come over to the lampstand and uh, they would light it and make sure it had fresh oil and they would trim the wicks because if the wick isn't trimmed, the fire will go out. You've got to keep trimming the wick. Jesus used a parable of the ten virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. Uh, five had made sure they bought extra oil and they trimmed their wicks and the five foolish ones were careless about life. And when the bridegroom came, the five foolish ones realized they weren't up to snuff, they weren't up to par, and so they went to go get more oil. But in the meantime, the bridegroom came and the doors opened and the five wise virgins went in for the a wedding banquet and the five foolish ones got left out in the dark. Well, here the priests would come into the holy place and every day, several times a day, they would make sure there was enough oil in the lamps. This is a pattern of things to come. But not only is this a pattern of the temple or the, the, the house of God, so to speak, in heavenly places... But it's also symbolic of our personal lives. And the outer court is what has access to everybody in the world. My physical body is what's seen and my physical body is what interacts. They would come to the lampstand and light the candles and attend to the candles and make sure it's burning bright. They would then go over to the table of showbread and every Sabbath, break tw bake 12 new loaves of bread and put it out. And then they would come over to the altar of incense. And so they would come to uh, the left, to the right, and then move forward ahead. And every day that the priests ministered in the holy place, they were walking out the sign of a cross. It was symbolic of things to come. But the relevance of that to you and me is that the bread, which was called the show bread, was symbolic of the presence of God. <laughs> it is very important that you and I, as Christians, it is very important that we practice the presence of God. It's very important that it becomes important to us that there's showbread in our lives, that we have made the effort, and it's not by works, but how many of you know the things you appreciate you attend to, and the things you don't appreciate you let go? Hello? And so it is important that we attend to the presence of God. It's important that we attend to the lamp of our life and make sure that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, that we keep trimming our wick, making sure that we're giving off the brightest light that we could give. Otherwise, our light gets smoky, it gets dim, it gets dull, and it'll go out. And the altar of incense was lit every day and all day long they would keep putting incense on the altar and that's the life of praise it is so important that we live consciously in the presence of god we remind ourselves that god is with us god is 
around us and God is watching. And so we live and walk circumspectly. We walk with respect to the fact that we are now sons of God and we are in his presence. We attend to our personal lives, the lampstand, and make sure that we are constantly allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us and we trim what needs to be trimmed in our lives. Talk about trimming. Jesus said that a good husbandman will go to the fruit tree and trim off branches that don't bear fruit. Church, it's important. These are the things we have to do. These aren't the things that God should be doing. We need to tend our own lives. Can I get an agreement? And we need to trim the branches that don't bear fruit. Okay, and so they would trim the lampstands and light the altar and make a sacrifice of praise. It's so, so important. And look, if we don't have time to do this stuff in church, it's very likely that you won't make time to do this stuff at home. Now, I'm not saying that's an absolute. I'm saying <laughs> it's as the crow flies, you know. Generally, if we don't have time on the Lord's Day, and every day is the Lord's Day, but if we don't have time and we want to rush church and we want to rush God and it's inconvenient and we're getting an attitude because it's 1140 and he's going to start preaching now, if we don't have the attitude that God is worth this, how the heck are you going to find time for God in the busyness of your life? And let me tell you, the devil knows how to make life get busy. How many, those of you that are a little bit more my vintage, you're young, but you're my vintage, how many of you can testify that life is getting a heck of a lot more busier and crazier? Give me a show of hands. The enemy knows how to do that because he wants to crowd God out of your life. And we become so gullible and we comply without realizing it. You've got to draw a line in the sand. Just like you have to draw a line in the sand with relationships and other people because people are abusive and they will crowd into your space and they will get into your face. And when they get into your face, your ugly face is going to come to the surface. Somebody say amen. It's, it's just the truth. And so if you don't learn to draw boundaries in the sand in relationships, if you don't draw those boundary lines, the people will crowd it in because people have become, we've become lovers of self and people just want what they want. And so, you know, if you've got something they want, they're just going to disrespect your boundaries unless you set clear boundaries listen it's the same with our spiritual lives the enemy will cross the boundaries and he will take as much as he can because he's a taker the thief comes to steal he comes to take he comes to kill he comes to leave you bankrupt and life has become so busy that we want to put the hurry up on God as well and we put less attention on the spiritual condition of our lives than we do on the physical condition of our lives and on the financial condition of our lives I think that we should be in church five days a week and then go to work two days a week. <laughs> now, I'm not preaching that as a doctrine, so if you're listening via live stream or even here in the church, no, pastor isn't starting a new religion, okay? 
I, I'm just talking to you from my heart and just being real with you. Come on. Where's it at? You know, uh, listen, I make no apology about how we have church because I make no apology about serving God and, and, and serving God's a lifestyle. And so, you know, I'm not here to rush in and rush out and how quick. Hey, do you know how long it takes me to put a sermon together? I was up at 12.45, then lost the whole thing on my computer and was up till 2.30 and again at 6.30. I ain't rushing nothing in 60 minutes. I'm going to milk the sermon for all I can. <laughs> and for your benefit. <laughs> you have to draw boundaries in your spiritual life and say, whoa, devil, you're speeding up life and you're speeding up the world and you're making it crazier and crazier and I don't have time to scratch. But I'm going to make time to be with God. And that's what the table of showbread's about. That's what the... Uh, lampstand is about that's what the altar of incense is about and sometimes when we want to hurry up church I think you know pastors you're such in such a race to have the biggest church how about being in a race to create in people the biggest place for God Belonging, <laughs> praise God. I'm not against big or mega. My God is big and he's mega. But I want to give him a big place in me. I want to give him a big chunk of who I am. I want to give him all. Are you hearing me? Only one guy once a year got into the Holy of Holies. And that was the high priest. And what's interesting is, in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. There's a curtain separating these two places. They're very intimate. They're very close. They're separated only by a curtain. That curtain is purple, embroidered with a gold thread, showing pictures of archangels. And once you go into and the Holy of Holies... Past the curtain, there's the Ark of the Covenant, this box made of acacia wood, and these two huge angel figures with their wings tipping and touching at the top, touching each other at the top, overlaid in gold. And that in between the angels is the mercy seat of God. You know, it amazes me that even in the Old Testament, everybody thinks that God in the Old Testament is angry and crotchety, you know. Uh, how many of you ever saw the movie Grumpy Old Men? <laughs> okay. And we think of God as that grumpy old guy. But even in the Old Testament, when God says, Moses, build it according to the pattern and exactly as the pattern, you know what he called his throne? The mercy seat. You know, religion is guarded in our heads. We think of God sitting on a judgment seat. God only ever sits on a judgment seat for one short period at the very, very end of the ages. 
But for 99.99999% of the time, he sits on the mercy seat. And when that one high priest once a year would go into that place, he would get to see the glory, the Shekinah glory. That's what Moses wanted to see in the wilderness. Moses said, God, show me your glory. How much time and effort do we take to want to push in to the deeper things of God? You see, we get saved through Jesus and we come in through the entrance gate and we hang around the cross. But God intended it for us to have relationship with Him inside of the Holy of Holies. And many of us as Christians, we're really repeating Old Testament pattern. Jesus came, died on the cross, ripped the temple curtain, and took his blood and entered the heavenly sanctuary and sprinkled the Ark of the Covenant that is in the heavens with his real blood. But we get saved and a lot of us are content to just hang on the outside. And this whole series is about getting you not on the inside of the Holy of Holies, but getting you on the inside of God's head and on the inside of God's heart. Because when you see the Shekinah glory, like Moses saw in the wilderness, what Moses, the glory of God is all the excellent attributes of who God is. When Moses experienced wave after wave of God's glory, he was experiencing a bird's eye surround sound 360 view from the inside of God's head and the inside of God's heart. See, like Moses, I don't want to know about the God of my fathers. And I don't want to just have an encounter. Moses said at the burning bush, he says, but if I go back to Egypt and they don't believe me, what do I do to prove it? And God says, put your hand inside your cloak. Now pull it out. It's leprosy. Now put it back in. Pull it out. It's clean. Pick up that staff that's in your hand. Throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. Moses actually ran away. And God says, come back. Pick up the snake by the tail. He had an encounter with God. He had an, an encounter with the power of God. So some of us, go from, you know, being born again to having an encounter with God and we've experienced some of the power of God. That's not enough. I don't want to stay there. I don't want to just see the acts of God. This is what David writes in the Psalms. He says, the children of Israel saw the acts of God. They saw the power of God. A lot of the church today doesn't even see the power of God. They're still out there in the outer court. But some will push in because they want to see the acts of God. They believe in the miraculous today. They believe in a God who can do the impossible and will do the impossible. But then a lot of us just stay there. I don't want to see the acts of God. 
I want to know the ways of God. So in David writes, the children of Israel saw the acts of God, but Moses learned the ways of God. What does that mean? He got inside of God's head and understood how God thinks. He got inside of God's heart and understood God's heart. Isn't it very interesting that Moses, who God through Moses wrote the law, the law of God, And the law was very legalistic, very precise, very concise, and this is how it is. It was the black and white. But what's interesting is that Moses, who was the man who brought the law from God, was the same man who got inside the head and the heart of God. And the Bible says there was no one as meek as Moses in all the land. How do you become the legal guy? How do you become the lawgiver? How do you become the guy who gets the Ten Commandments, carves, sees God carve it out in stone, and yet there's something in his life that interprets all of that through meekness, through mercy, through grace? Come on, have you ever read about the journey and how the Hebrew children harassed Moses and harassed God, and they doubted, they complained, they and moaned and uh, you fill in the gaps and uh, you know they were just cranky all the time and here's Moses God saying I'm going to annihilate these people and I'm going to start again with you and Moses says God don't show them mercy you see Moses went from knowing about God and experiencing the power of God to getting inside of God's head and getting inside of God's heart. And even though he was the lawgiver, he understood the heart and the character and the nature of God. And that enabled him to be the meekest man in the world. Let me explain meekness. Meekness is power with restraint. Moses had the ability to say, God, I'm with you on that. Annihilate them. God, I'm with that. With you on that. Give me a high five. Go on, blow them off the face of the earth. There's one thing when they get angry at you, but now they're getting angry at me. They went too far. Come on, God. No. Moses is showing mercy. Why? Because getting inside the heart of God and inside the head of God helped him to understand the God who wasn't going to kill him even though he killed an Egyptian. Pharaoh wanted to kill Moses and Moses ran and he ran from his calling. He ran from his knowledge of God because what he knew about Pharaoh he projected onto God and at the burning bush he has an encounter with the power of God and even though it was holy ground God says hey Moses I know what you did but I'm with you I forgive you and so this lawgiver why wasn't he legalistic and harsh how did he find grace and mercy how did he become such a merciful man he got inside the heart of God he got inside the head of God he threw all the religion out he threw all the projections out and he started to know God from the inside out and even though he was the lawgiver no one showed more grace in all of the Old Testament than Moses himself You see, you can't become like God till you see God. We are created in His image, but there's something about 
implanting an image. What you behold, you become. And if you behold an image of God that is harsh, that is mean, that is selfish, that is grumpy, you'll be it. But if you behold the image of God as the loving, caring, forgiving, gracious God that He is, as we behold Him in the image of who He is, the spirit of who He is will transform us into His likeness. You know why we have so many grumpy Christians? Because we have so many Christians who've got an image of God that's grumpy. And if we had more Christians understanding the love and the mercy and the grace and the goodness and the patience and the kindness of God, we'd have a lot more Christians that look like that. So you might be saying right now, so pastor, you're preaching all of this because you want to change us? I didn't say it. I know this. I want to see him as he is because I need to change. There's a better version of me and it's in Christ. There's a better version of us and it's in God. Can I get an amen? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, you take that picture down and... uh, How do you judge God? You know, the series called Judging God. How do you judge God? How do you see Him? What's your image of Him? And, and so, they're, they're just like the tabernacle. There are three levels of faith. Number one, there's the faith that brings us to God through Jesus Christ. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in Him, faith, whoever believes in Him, shall not perish but have eternal life. The first level of faith is the level of faith that brings us to God. It's a simple faith. It's a childlike faith. We believe that God is and, you know, Jesus Christ is God and he died for us. James chapter 2 verse 19, this is the very first level of faith. It says, you believe there is one God. Good. But don't stop there because even demons believe that and shudder. So what do you believe about God? You just believe God is? You believe enough about God to get inside the entrance gate and you're in the outer court? There's a second level of faith. And that's the level of faith that enables us to function in God. In Mark chapter 11, verse 19, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done. That is the function of faith. It's a principle. Here's the principle. Let me outline it really uh, concisely here. Um, uh, You speak it. Speak it, don't doubt it, and thank him you already have it, 
and you'll have it. You speak it. Don't doubt it. Believe, thank him that you already have it and you'll have it. That's the function of faith. And many of us have learned the principles of faith. Stay with me because this gets better. We've learned the principles of faith. And we've gotten into the holy place and we're taking care of the showbread. We're taking care of the lampstand. We're taking care of the altar of incense. And some of us have learned how to see the acts of God. We've learned how to step in a faith. We've learned how to touch a miracle. We understand faith. There is a formula to faith. You can teach faith. Okay? Uh, and faith is bound up in this principle that if you speak it and you don't doubt what you speak, you can say to that mountain, be removed and you don't doubt it, and you start to thank God for the miracle as if you've already got it, you will get it. It's a principle of faith. Uh, we understand that formula of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1, in the Amplified, it outlines this principle of faith also. It says, faith is the assurance. It's the title deed. Faith is like having the title deed a confirmation, being absolutely convinced you already have it. Faith is being convinced you already have it of things that haven't materialized yet, of things that are hoped for, but they're divinely guaranteed in the Word. Faith is having the evidence in your head and in your heart before you ever see it. That's exactly like Mark 11 when God, Jesus says, uh, believe that you have received it and you will receive it. That's the formula of faith. Faith speaks a thing into being and will not doubt it and it starts to get excited. People say, well, I don't want to get my hopes up. Don't worry, if you think like that, you never will get your hopes up. And the miracle will never come knocking on your door either. So you prepared yourself not to be disappointed, so don't be disappointed when your miracle doesn't come. Jesus actually says, get your hopes up. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, get your hopes up. The formula of faith is to believe that you've already received it. Believe that it's already yours. That's the formula of faith. That's the second level of faith. The first level of faith is the faith that we believe in God enough. As sinners, we, 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 we step out and we, we put our hand up in a service. Yeah, I want to ask Jesus in my heart. We take this, what is to us, a huge step of faith. And we get saved. We have this experience. We're born again. And then we spend 99 years around the gate. And God says, come on in deeper. You're in water up to your ankles. I want to take you in water to your knees and then take you in waters that you can go swimming in. You see, there's more of God to experience. And so we understand the formula of faith. We've gone into the holy place, some of us, and we understand, we know how to function. We know the principles of faith. And then there's the third level of faith. And that's where God really wants us to be. And it's the faith that sees God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse six, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God 
because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists. That's the starting place. That's that baby level of faith. Must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. See that last half of the sentence? That's about the character of God. The first part is about believing in the existence of God. The second part is about believing in the character of God. And that's the faith that gets inside of God's head and inside of God's heart. That's the faith that goes to work on you and me and says, you know what? I realize that I'm I'm judging God by the image of my earthly dad. I'm judging God through the circumstances of rejection that I've experienced in life. I'm judging God through the failure of my marriage. Here's a partner who said they would love me forever and it fell apart. They cheated on me. They did this. They did that. They hurt me. They abused me. They wounded me. And we project these things onto God. And and so this level of faith says, no, I am not going to let the circumstances of life carve out an image of God. I'm going to push into God, I want to see the fullness of the beauty, of the glory, of the magnificent, of his perfect character, and I'm going to keep lining up my concepts with God's word, which is the perfect mirror of who he is, and anything in me that doesn't line up with the word of God, I'm going to zap it, I'm going to annihilate it, I'm going to oust it out of my memory and out of my thinking, I'm going to ask Jesus to come into my hurts and Heal me of the memory and the wounds so that I see God as God really is. Too many Christians don't spend enough time in the holy place attending to the showbread, the presence of God, attending to the lampstand, allowing the Holy Ghost to fill them, and they're trimming their lives so that their life isn't smoky, and then lighting the altar of praise. We like the altar of complaints. We like the altar of bitterness. We like the altar of God, why didn't you do this? And God, why did that happen? And God, you know, I don't get you. I'm annoyed at you. And we light the wrong kind of incense. We need to be, if you want to get to seeing the Shekinah glory of God, you've got to attend to the stuff first in the soul. You've got to attend to the stuff in the holy place. You've got to allow yourself to have time to be in his presence and time to be filled with the Holy Ghost and time to be singing praise and to be singing worship. And I make no apology for how we do Jesus on a Sunday morning. Because as I keep weeding out my own fears and as I keep weeding out my own prejudice and as I keep weeding out my own hurts, it enables me to get closer to see God as he really is. You know what's really interesting? If we were to go back to that black and white of the tabernacle, Once you come inside the gate, which is symbolic of coming to God through Jesus Christ, and you get past the altar. Can you throw that up again? There you go. And you come to 
that square box with the grate. See it? The altar of burnt offering. Once you get past that, you got the laver. It's this brass big bowl with water, and the priests would clean themselves. Isn't it interesting that after the sacrifice that removes sins, it's up to the priest to wash themselves? It, after Jesus died for you, it's up to you to wash yourself with the Word of God. God doesn't do that for you. Listen, if you're too lazy to cut your own fingernails, I'm not coming to your house to cut them. And if you can't be bothered cleaning out your fingernails, I'm not going to do it for you. And there are certain things that God will not do for you because if you don't care about it enough, then you're not going to care if God does it or doesn't do it. Personal hygiene is your personal responsibility. And your personal walk with God is your personal responsibility. And as priests of the new covenant, we've got to spend time in the holy place so that when we get into the holy of holies, we'll really see the Shekinah glory. We'll see God as God is and not as somebody told us or as life made us experience. Can I get an amen? amen. Good preaching, Pastor Ron. You see, the faith that sees God is the faith that goes beyond believing he exists. It's the faith that sees his character. What is the character of God? He's a rewarder. The faith that sees God is the faith that takes John 10.10. See, John 10.10 years ago when I was about 18 and I was leaving America to go back to Australia for the second time with my parents, the youth department wanted to buy me a watch. They didn't tell me that. And so in secret, they asked me, what's your favorite verse? And I said, John 10.10. And John 10.10 is one of many favorite verses now, but it's, it, became, it became like a... a, a um, a foundation stone. It became an altar. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I, your God, have come to give you life and life more abundantly. And so anything I go through in life, I filter through John 10.10. 10. There are so many things that we allude to God that isn't God. God comes to give me life and life more abundantly. And all the sucky things in life come from the enemy. Now, can God take the garbage and recycle it and make it a blessing? Absolutely, because God is incredible. But God's not the author of the garbage. And so, seeing God, lining your experience with God up with what does the word of God say about God Jesus made it clear let me clarify he said the thief comes to steal kill and destroy I've come to set you free to give you life and life more abundantly see in Acts chapter 10 Peter confesses he just got a revelation he said, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is God doesn't show favoritism. Some of us never get into 
that Shekinah glory of God, we understand the principles of faith and we're struggling with the showbread and the, the, the lighting the candles and we're, we're doing all the function of faith. We're working at it and we're taking the principles of faith and we're speaking something in a being and uh, you know, I'm not gonna doubt it. It's already happened, it's already mine. It's, I've got it, I've got it, I got it. And at the same time, while we're doing the function of faith, our picture of God is all screwed up. And you can carry out the function or the principles of faith and you can speak it and repeat it and shout it and uh, (laughs) echo it. But if your picture of God is askew, it won't line up. And so sometimes we're so busy working out the principles of faith that we've never spent time going face-to-face and seeing God and dealing with the stuff in us that needs to be pruned or cut away. Peter says, I've come to the realization God doesn't have favorites. Sometimes we'll say, well, did you see how God healed that person? That's amazing, but I don't know that he would do it for me. You haven't climbed up on his lap. Well, he'll do it for pastor, and, you know, when pastor prays, things happen, but I don't know that God will do it for me. You haven't gotten inside of God's head. In the King James, it says God is no respecter of persons, and that doesn't mean he doesn't respect anyone. What it means is he's not going to show favoritism. So anything God does for someone else, he'll do it for you because God cannot be unjust. How many of you know God is just? If God isn't just, then he's not righteous. And if God isn't righteous, then God isn't holy. If God shows favoritism, he's not just. And if God isn't just, then he's not righteous. And if he's not righteous, he's not holy. And if he's not holy, he's the devil. See, God is just. And he won't treat someone else with special favoritism and then disregard you if you come to him on the same level. And so what image do you have of God? And so in the holy place, I work on the showbread and I work on the lampstand and I'm making sure that my image of God lines up with the real image of God. Are you all hearing me? And that's the stuff you and I have to attend to. And the more we do that, while we all have access to the Holy of Holies because of the blood of Jesus, and we absolutely do, some of us are in the Holy of Holies, but we don't see God for the cloud. We don't see Him as He is. Who hurt you? Who disappointed you? Who really broke your heart? Because somebody did. Somewhere, Sometime you've experienced absolute rejection and hurt and pain. And until we take inventory of those things, somehow they will overlap onto our image of God. I want to get into the Holy of Holies, and when I'm there, I don't want to see God with colored glasses. I want to see God as he is. Because when I get inside his heart and inside his head, here's the funny thing. Once you really see God, 
It's no effort. You don't have to be so concerned about working the formulas of faith. You come to a place of rest because you've seen him. I'm not against the formulas of faith. I use them all the time. There is a, a way to operate in faith. But you can use the formulas and have a wrong picture of God and never get there. But when you get there and you climb inside of God's heart and you get all the junk out and you climb inside of God's head, it's so much easier to operate in the formulas of faith because you saw God. And that's where God wants to take us. Inside his head, inside his heart. That's where he wants you to be. But it's up to you and me to spend time in the holy place so that we can renew the mind and see God in a different light. Stand with me. Sometimes, if the worship team could come, sometimes, you know, if you've experienced a, a difficult breakup in a marriage, a partner who deserted you or wounded you, what are the things that come out of our mouth? Why, God? God, why weren't you there? God, why didn't you this? And a love that was promised and then broken too easily becomes the scar in which a demon will hide. And he'll hide in that scar and he'll point at God and make you see God through the disappointments of your life. What's this whole series about? Am I just trying to advocate God? I'm trying to be a billboard for God? Yes, yeah, sort of. Yeah, absolutely. My greatest desire is, God, I, I want them to see you. And I want to see you. But I know that when you see God, how God really is, everything else in your life will start to come into line and come into order. I'm going to say something really deep. I'm going to say something really smart. I didn't think of it. The Holy Ghost just threw it through my mind the other day. I'm going to repeat it. Listen to this. If you were to go back to the garden before the fall, everything was perfect. Everything was in order. Everything was just right. Nothing was out of order. Nothing was crazy. Nothing was displaced until Adam and Eve had a wrong picture of God. And from a wrong picture of who God is came disorder, came brokenness, came hurt, and came pain. As they judged God to be, that's what they experienced. What you sow is what you'll reap. In Proverbs it says, guard your heart. The heart 
in the Hebrew and in the Greek is always the realm of your mind and your emotions. What got locked down in your memory? In the midst of that hurt, what emotions concluded certain verdicts in your belief system? Guard your heart. Deal with your thought life. Deal with the emotions. Deal with the anger. Deal with what you project. This man hurt you and this black person hurt you and you're going to project it on every other black person. This white person hurt you and you're going to project it on every other white person. This person who's Puerto Rican is like this so all Puerto Ricans are like that. Listen, that is decrepit. That's the knowledge of evil, not the knowledge of good. And we project out of our fears. We project out of our rejection. We project out of our wounds. The world was in an orderly, perfect place while their picture of God was right. And when their picture of God was wrong, everything fell apart. So Solomon says, guard your heart because out of what's in your head and in your emotions, what makes up your belief system will come the issues that you face in life. Guard your heart for out of it are the issues of life. If I shortchange God in my faith about who he is, I'll be shortchanged in life, in my experience. God wants to take us to the Holy of Holies. And yes, we go there, all of us, because of the blood of Jesus. But I want us to go there without blinkers, without blinders without shaded or scratched lenses. Let's see him as the God who is perfect. He's always right and he's always good. And when my circumstances stink, it's not God's fault. And when things are going wrong and it doesn't look like God answered, I have to ask myself, did I open a window? Did I open a back door? For the enemy to get in. Because the fault is never at God's feet. The answer is at God's feet. Amen. Absolutely. And so as your shepherd, as your pastor. Why did I bother preaching? Because I wanted to lay foundation to what God was doing in the worship service. I want you to understand the tabernacle so that you understand as a priest of the new covenant, you've got to take time to bake the showbread. You've got to knead it. You've got to work it. You've got to fill the oil lampstand and you have to trim the wick. Or we end up like the five foolish virgins who thought they were all that but when the bridegroom came, they weren't ready. Are you hearing me, church? Absolutely. God will never do what's our responsibility. When we take care of what's our responsibility, God will show up and do the impossible. Amen. Amen.
Thank you, Jesus. And Father, I pray that each and every one of us will go from this place. But the same way we've been praying in the mornings here, on Saturdays, Monday to Friday, Sunday morning before church, I pray, Holy Spirit, visit people in their wounds. Visit them in the memories of their childhood where things went wrong. And I ask, Holy Spirit, that you will bring the healing, anointing that comes through Jesus Christ and bind up every broken heart. Help us to deal with the memories that make us project shadows onto the image of God. Help us to deal with the conclusions we came to in the middle of bitterness and hurt so that we don't keep eating from that bread. Help us to keep lining our life up with your word and the image of who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. 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 We're going to receive the tithes and offerings as we sing this worship song. Who here has never asked Jesus Christ in your heart? And maybe you did and you walked away, you're backslidden, but it's time to come back. I'm not even going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to, I, either you're hungry to see God or you're not. And if someone's open eyes is going to stop you from saying, I want to ask Jesus in my heart, then you didn't get it. So who here this morning, as we get ready to close, has never asked Jesus in their heart, but they want to. You've known about him, but now you want to know him. You want the encounter. You want to climb up on his lap. You've walked away, but you want to come back. Maybe that's you. Would you raise your hand very quickly? Who's that? One, two, thank you. You can put your hands down. Who else? Amen. Give them a round of applause. Who else? Who else? Praise God. You know, sometimes we get jaded. We get hurt. Sometimes the image religion gives us of God isn't the image of, of God at all. I'm going to ask everyone to pray with me. I don't know you guys. I think it's your first time. Is that right? Kenny okay. Kenny? Carla. Carla. Good day, guys. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it. And uh, we're going to pray. I'm going to ask everyone to pray. I'm going to ask you guys to repeat after me. I want everyone to repeat after me. So we're all doing this. Religion doesn't bring us to God. It's opening up our lives and saying, God, come inside. Relationship. I can give you a book of rules. I won't do squat. That's what religion's about. But today we're asking Jesus in our heart. And maybe you guys have been burned in the past, wounded, and it's caused you to run. Uh, sometimes the church can be a hurtful place instead of a healing place. Come on, let's everyone close our eyes. Everyone pray, dear God. I want to see you the way you are. I want to feel you. I want to know you. I want to climb inside of your head and inside of your heart. I want to see you, not who religions made you to be.
Jesus Christ. I'm sorry for all my mistakes. I'm sorry for reacting against you when I get hurt. I'm sorry for running away. I'm asking you, Jesus, to come into my life afresh. I need you, Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for loving me and accepting me. I want you. And I need you in my life again. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. God bless you.